Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Sophie Ellis-Bexter and welcome to Spinning Plates, the podcast where I speak to busy working women who also happen to be mothers about how they make it work. I'm a singer and I've released seven albums in between having my five sons aged 16 months to 16 years, so I spin a few plates myself. Being a mother can be the most amazing thing, but can also be hard to find time for yourself and your own ambitions. I want to be a bit nosy and see how other people balance everything. Welcome to Spinning Plates. Hey, Pockets. How are you doing? I'm recording this outside my house. My hand is so cold, it's about to fall off. Uh, I tried recording this about three or four times inside the house. I kept being interrupted because it turns out I had a lot of children and they just want to come and find me even when I hide myself in the room. So it's quite obvious I want some space. Uh, anyway, how are you? It's been ages. I haven't done a podcast since December. Had uh, a month off and I'm now back with a beautiful selection of people to talk to for... For this series, third series, that's exciting. Thank you so much for, uh, yeah, for being there with me. I've, I've missed you actually. I've been looking forward to getting on with another series. Um, what's been going on in the meantime? <sighs> Same as you probably. Lockdown, blah blah. Uh, not really sure what day of the week it is. Uh, actually, that's not quite true. I do know it's Valentine's Day, so happy love day to you. And um, kids are on half term, so you know, all off school. Uh, how is everything going with you and if you're doing the homeschooling thing should we just admit defeat and not call it homeschooling why did they ever call it homeschooling it's not homeschooling as my mum pointed out to me this week it's emergency education doesn't that sound much more apt if you think you're doing emergency education oh hello birdie you stop trying to be perfect at it which is ridiculous anyway My, my house you've seen what my kitchen looks like probably we don't have a home that looks like a school. Uh, and I am not very patient when it comes to teaching, it turns out. 
Anyway, that's boring. We don't want to talk about that. What else has been going on? I've been writing a bit of a book. That's been fun. Doing a bit of an autobiography, just as and when I can. It's been quite fun to delve back to memories I haven't thought of for ages, like going back to when I was 16, 17. Actually, it's been quite traumatic, but it's fine. <laughs> You've got to read all about it at some point, hopefully. I've uh, been doing a bit of work on the album. Everything's been pretty slow, just toodling along and waiting for spring. I can't wait. Anywho, you don't want to hear about all that. You want to hear about who I'm speaking to this week, who is brilliant uh, food chef, uh, cook, blogger, and um, famously known as the bootstrap cook, Jack Monroe. Now, I was really keen to speak to Jack for a few reasons. Uh, I've always found Jack a really um, intelligent presence in my Twitter feed. Um, and she is someone who identifies as non-binary, which means she does use she, her pronouns, but also they, them. And I think if you've got any kind of questions about how that might work, I think you'll find Jack speaks really, really well about that and about what it's like to raise a kid as a non-binary parent and also what it's like to raise a kid as a single parent, what it's like to raise a kid with a really good relationship with the father of your child and also what it's like to raise your small person in really, really extreme poverty. Um, Jack found themselves redundant after having their first baby and then slowly slipped into just having no money, no resources, extreme anxiety about how to deal with it, shame that goes along with it. Anyway, they speak really, really well about it. So I felt really privileged actually to spend such a long time in their presence because um, I found them really, really generous with their time and also passionate and super smart uh, and completely charming, actually. I thought Jack was just really lovely. So thanks to Jack and thanks to you for letting me get on with another series. I, I really love it and I've got some lovely guests this series and my hand is about to fall off with cold. So let's listen to the chat and I'll see you on the other side. Um, well, I've been really, really looking forward to talking to you because I feel like there's so many things we can talk about. Just trying to think where to start. Probably start with the here and now. How's everything in your life at the moment? How's it all going? We're about to enter into this lovely, another lockdown. Uh, well, I mean, just sort of that purgatory phase before going back into lockdown, waiting to see what's going to happen, like what mm. the world looks like for the next few weeks or however long it lasts. So just sort of pensive, but trying to, you know, get all the ducks in a row. Yeah. Get some pasta and rice in, you know, make exactly. sure there's some stuff kicking around to do and try to not lose my head about work stuff and just go from there, really. I think this year's been so tough with, with that because I felt actually weirdly very busy this year, but I think mm. I've just, I think half of the busyness is just in my head, really, <laughs> in terms of just trying to keep my thoughts ordered. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how you found it with the first lockdown when suddenly you're just at home all the time, but... I just found it very hard to kind of think clearly about stuff or find space to sort of order my thoughts about what I was trying to get done and what the days should consist of. Yeah, it's suddenly that complete lack of routine. Mm. And um, I mean, I've worked from home as a freelancer for the last seven years, roughly. I lose track of time, but roughly seven years. So I've always been quite used to having to structure my own days, do my own routines. And, and I've just done, on an Excel spreadsheet, a fit of organisation that you'll learn is extremely rare, <laughs> <laughs> um, like a timetable for my days. Like So this time I do social media, this I check any like orders on my website and you know Instagram and things like that. And then the kids were booted out of school and... and uh, responsible for their education and suddenly it was like oh so that 
that lasted all of six days and now I've got to do rocks and biology and long division and and um and we've sort of we're just pulling out the other side of that now mm. just going oh okay so right where's that excel spreadsheet i did with some sort of timetable in and um i know a lot of people are calling for schools to close now um mm. in the second lockdown but i also completely understand why they're not yeah because it's it's so disruptive to children's education yeah i read something the other day that said that um, year seven children are now about 22 months behind where they should be in their curriculum wow. at some schools like oh, wow. in their like learning where they're, yeah. where they're at on their learning journeys and I just read that and I was like oh yikes that's a that's a gap isn't it yeah and so um, your your son he's in year six year now, six so 11 plus next week mm. and um we're just sort of hanging in going like well, the, I mean, the impact that this year would have had on on his age group, on all age groups, really, but specifically on children in year six who are working towards like their secondary schools and things like that is just, we've just got to suck it up, I suppose, and I see know. where it goes. <laughs> I know, it is really tough. And I think my 11-year-old was really angry that the schools were staying open for lockdown he's like the only good thing about a lockdown is no school for him so he's just like just yeah. be at home. mine absolutely loved being at home for six months like um yeah. you know he's um, and i i loved it we we got a really good relationship we've got a really good relationship we got stronger and deeper in that time we got to know each other really well in ways that you don't really get to when they're out of the house for seven hours a day and mm. and um and that, and that time was really lovely and I'm really grateful for it. But when he, when it was announced that schools were reopening, he practically ran down the road with his school bag, like, <laughs> I'm back, I'm going back. And I was like, yeah, it's time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I know. I think with your lockdown, mainly just the two of you then. Yeah, it was the, it was the two of us. So um, it was quite intimate and very um, sort of a bit tedious in places, but also quite fun because if I lost sort of half a day's work because I was hanging around playing Lego with a 10-year-old, I just would shunt it off and do it in the evenings instead. But a lot of my support network, um, my mum was shielding um, and she does some childcare after school and my admin assistant has a daughter who was shielding. So the people that would normally be popping in and out and providing like stimulation, childcare assistance were all sort of suddenly shut away in the houses. Suddenly like, hang on, my entire social network consists of vulnerable people. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I haven't um, worked on making sort of stronger and more resilient friends for this time around, <laughs> unfortunately. There wasn't time. Wasn't there, there wasn't time. Times would go out and like befriend people to the extent that you'd be like, "Hey, come and look after my kid for now." Um, but hey, it's fine. We'll we'll work it out. I know we will have to. Really, I don't know. It's funny because when I first started recording these conversations, I thought I don't really want every every chat to involve lots of talk about lockdown. So mm. initially, I'd always be like, "Okay, let's get the lockdown chat out of the way," because it felt like that chapter. But now I think we're all. We're all kind of acknowledging probably what we already knew, which is that the impact of this year is going to rumble on for far, far longer, both in, you know, logistics for the here and now, you know, the way these next few months are going to pass, but also for the future, the way it's changed the course of what's been going on. So it isn't really something that's just like an aside as much anymore. No, um, and, and I think especially with... um 
the work that I do, I mean, I came to prominence in the last recession as somebody who was writing cheap recipes, but also writing about the realities of living on the breadline, looking for work. And I sort of keep quite a close eye on news, politics, current affairs mm. still. And it's hard not to think that we may be heading into another period of recession on austerity because the sheer amount of money that's been spent on mm. various government initiatives to try to contain and control the fallout from coronavirus means that at some point they're going to have to turn around and have that difficult conversation and say, oh, well, now we need to claw some of that back. Yeah. And unlike the first time round with all the, oh, we're all in it together slogans, this time they really do have a mandate to say, well, we're all in it together and yeah. start sort of cutting services and, and payments again. And it's the impact of this year, I think, will easily roll on for years to come. Yeah. I mean, we've we've already seen... You know, with Marcus Rashford and all the, um, you know, there's been loads and loads of news stories about children that n normally only get access to a good meal when they go to school. Yeah. And it's funny because when you look at the stats for for poverty in the UK and particularly children living in poverty, I've I've often spoken to people about it and I'll say, oh, you know, it's it's a third of children in the UK, and they'll react, you know, so extreme because that's such a, that's an alarming amount and then I always kind of get google out and double check that I've said it right because I suddenly think that just sounds way too many but I think it is something like that yeah and people have a really visceral response to it as well mm. because um because it is so shocking a lot of people's instant reaction is denial no that can't possibly be true no that's not true there are no children in poverty in Britain and you're like well there are because I my child was one of them and I now work with people in poverty and I can tell you horrendous stories of people's realities living in Britain today but it's always been not fascinating but interesting to me that especially online a lot of the discourse is to just instantly shut it down and to mm. try to push that blame back on parents or say oh well look at what else they're spending their money on or they must be being frivolous or feckless or and it's like no quite simply there's not enough going in to meet living costs nobody deliberately chooses to deprive their children of like fundamental needs like heat and shelter and food um at the i mean there may be very very few people that do but they're largely when you are a parent responsible for the well-being of a child you will do anything to ensure the well-being of that child and it's Absolutely. not just food poverty it's food poverty is like a tiny part of a a much larger problem it's it's just poverty and people who are going without food are usually going without an awful lot else as well yeah no I think you're, well yeah no I mean well I suppose it's just such a it's something that you've completely experienced and I think I do think that there's probably a lot of people that have the, the you know able to speak about this and have the um uh, the profile to speak about it are often not the people that have necessarily experienced it. They're people that might feel it deeply and be, you know, hugely empathetic and want to make fundamental changes, but they haven't. I was wondering this morning, I was thinking, what do you think there's something that people who've never experienced poverty, is there something that you think they would just never, they'll never quite understand about what that feels like? Yeah, I think the thing that people don't understand and can't until you've lived it, is um, the 
the long-term effects of living in poverty. I mean, I was I was on benefits and when they were paid um, in 2011, 12, 13. And so it's, that was a clear seven years ago now. And behind my front door, I have quite literally a knee-high stack of unopened post um, because I can't open my post anymore because I, I have to sort of wait until it gets ridiculous and then I'll get a friend around and we'll sit there and go through it like one item at a time and I can't open my front door unless I'm know that I'm expecting someone so I miss a lot of parcels but luckily my neighbors are nice and understanding mm-hmm. and they'll text me and be like I've got a parcel for you um I always check my bank balance before I buy anything at the supermarket and the other day I was um in the queue at Asda and I get text alerts to my phone whenever I try to log into my online banking and I had the wrong mobile phone with me I had my work one rather than my personal one it's a new measure that I've put in to try to separate my life doesn't work (laughs) um and I was literally panicking in the queue because it said oh we're going to send a text message to this phone and I was suddenly like I don't have it on me I can't check my balance and I was just I was spending 12 pounds and I was like I held my breath the whole time I had my like card over the contactless thing and while it was going through and I was like even though I knew I had the money in my account I knew it was there but it's just because my card was declined so many times it's Mm. like a it's it's a trauma and it sticks with you and um I've had therapy I've had all sorts of interventions and various things I do all the stuff I meditate and I read the books about being confident and self-empowered and and it just it's just something that doesn't go away. And I get letters and tweets and emails from readers who say that they were poor in the 70s and they still don't open their post. Mm. And I'm like, oh, good, so it just doesn't go away. <laughs> it's just a thing that you learn to live around rather than yeah. just the fear of going without. Well, I suppose as long as... Um you know, you've found the way to deal with it, you know, having your friend come around to go through the post whenever that lovely day. <laughs> well, well, once in a while. <laughs> I, I do, I mean, I hate open my post, but obviously I haven't had it in that deep-rooted trauma of just being frightened about what lies within and mm. the bills you can't pay and the threat of people coming around to threaten the roof That's over the your thing. head. Um, and I suppose sometimes when things are really scary and traumatic... Um, it's okay to, to sort of acknowledge that that's going to be maybe part of your life, but then you've got other things you can do to support yourself out of it. Mm. Not everything has to be fixed, I guess, so long as you're still, you're coping in the middle of it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, the bills thing I need to get better at because they are one of the things that if you ignore them, they get larger. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you're not helping yourself here, Jack. So I need to sort of move that from a sort of a twice a year bill opening party so maybe like a <laughs> monthly one yeah. so that things don't get out of hand but um I'm working on that I mean at least they don't go straight in the bin now so that's yeah. you know that I keep them with an intent <laughs> to go through them eventually but um yeah it gets a bit hairy sometimes <laughs> yeah the bill opening party doesn't sound like much fun for it's generally not it's generally <laughs> just hats. a bit like you get the big recycle bag out and one of you does the envelopes and the other one puts them in piles and this is the electric this is the gas this is the tv license this is the... and then you go through them and you're like oh yeah that's mounting up mm, right, okay i'll pay that or oh they're getting a bit angry i should probably prioritize that and you, <laughs> yeah you sort of prioritize the ones in red and capitals first and then the 
people who seem quite nice. You, they Sadly, the water company have always been really nice to me, so unfortunately they go to the bottom of the pile, um, which is uh, not, a, not a great strategy. <laughs> but it's the one I have. <laughs> I think that I would do the same. Um, so when you first had your, your baby... Um, it's Johnny, isn't it? Yeah, Johnny. Yeah. Um, so when you first had Johnny, uh, what was going on in your life at the time? You were only 24 when you had him, weren't you? I was pretty yeah. young. I was in the fire service. I was um, an emergency call handler, um, which sounds like you just pick up the phone and be like, oh yeah, we'll send a fire engine. But actually it's a massively complicated job and um, one that I still talk about with a lot of affection. And um, well, tell me what, more. What makes it massively complicated? What happens? So, so um, basically, it takes eighteen months to achieve what they call competence in the role, and that is like great big fat ring binders full of things that you have to learn. So, for example, if your um, if your house is on fire, um, generally send four fire appliances. But if it's a house with a thatched roof, you've got to send like specialist appliances or up to eight because it's not a thatched roof. So you've got to learn the areas of Essex where houses are likely to have thatched roofs or wooden structures. And then if it's a post box of lights, one fire appliance with a post box attached to a building, it's two. But if it's a post box attached to a building with a thatched roof, it's eight. If it's a chemical incident, you need to find out the um, the kind of chemical, the risks in the vicinity, the wind speed, the location, whether there are any schools around. So something as simple as a jam spillage at Tiptree Jam Factory could actually be 20 fire appliances and calls into the Met Office and the fire and the police and the ambulance and all sorts. And I can still remember all of those yeah, attendances off by heart um, because when you get that fire call in, you've got 30 seconds to ascertain from somebody who's generally in a state of extreme distress on the other end of the phone, where it is, the nature of the incident and um, and whether there are any risks in the vicinity, persons reported, which means people trapped inside or at risk. And you've got 30 seconds to do that, locate the nearest fire appliances that um, that would be suitable for that incident, call down to the fire station and get them on the way. In a, in th- while calming someone down on the end of the wow, phone. Wow, yeah. Motorway incidents were the worst. Petrol tankers on their side on the motorway were always like, why did this come through to me? <laughs> <laughs> but And I loved it, but it was hard and it required all of your mental faculties at any given time. We did two days, um, 9am till 6pm, followed by two nights, which was 6pm till 9am. And wow. then you get like three days off and then it starts again. And you so say you'd be sitting up at like two o'clock in the morning, like wired, like waiting for some disaster to strike because you've got a 30 second window to try to resolve it. Wow. So it's, um, yeah, it's like the world's worst quiz show with everything at stake, really. Yeah. Um, so I was doing that and I got pregnant and um, I went on maternity leave. And when I came back from maternity leave, I was quite au fait with like all the equality and diversity policies because mm. I headed up the LGBT network um, and I was like hey can I have some like flexible hours so other people in my job who left at like 4pm or 5.30 in order to accommodate nursery hours so I was like oh I'd like some of those and I was turned down flat so then I applied for some day work roles like installing fire alarms in elderly people's houses and stuff mm. and like, quite handy with a screwdriver that seems quite cool um, and I was, my application was withdrawn. I wasn't allowed to apply for it. And this went on for a couple why of months. They, why, and did you, why did they turn you down with the... Oh, I found all the, all the paperwork the other day because I've been doing a bit of a tidy up in my house and I just sat down and read it all and I was just like, I'm not being mad. This was a completely unjust set of yeah. events. Like, I applied for 
jobs in the media team. I applied for yeah. like so many to, to do youth work with like junior fire assessors, juvenile fire assessors. And every single one I was just knocked back and knocked back and knocked back. And I was like, I had an exemplary record. Yeah. I worked hard. I was good at my job. But I think I was just pegged as trouble. And they were looking to make efficiency savings. And it was probably just easier to get rid of somebody who'd achieved competency and got that pay rise that goes Mm. with it than to recruit two more people to fill the role. And so I was, I resigned um, from hospital. So how how old was your baby at this point then? He was, so this was November 2011, so he was 19, 20 months old. So really little? Little tiny, little little sprocket. (laughs) And... um, and even when I resigned, my like watch officers and my seniors were really like, they were like, oh, you'll be fine. You've been in the fire service. Like people will chew your arm off to employ you. And so I left with that sort of, yeah, yeah do you know what? I've been in a, in a good job, in a uniformed role. I, sh- I, should, be all, I should be all right. Um, and 300 job applications later, I was like, I am not all right. <laughs> this is going quite badly. And um People, there's a narrative that I basically waltzed out of my job for a life on benefits. And I'm like, no, I loved my job. To the point where 10 years later, 10, yeah, 10 years later, I would go back in a heartbeat. And they were recruiting about six months ago. And I had to have a real, like, sit down and think moment of, like, could I go back? Would I go back? Earn exactly the same salary as I do now, um, and get four days off a week. I mean, hooray! But um, it's not for me at the moment. But I'd go back in a heartbeat. I loved it. Yeah, no, I can tell that. I can really see the passion for it, and I also I I'm dumbfounded actually that it seemed to have dealt you such a cruel blow. With um, you know, you were clearly trying to adapt, trying to diversify, trying to use employable skills. Um, I don't understand really why there wasn't more support for you when all you'd done is just had a baby. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ironically, um... At the time, one of my um, union reps had said to me, "You know, you could probably, um, you could probably have a good case for taking this to the press." Mm. And I was like, "Oh no, I just want a quiet life. Actually, it'd be really embarrassing to be in the paper." Knowing <laughs> <laughs> laugh. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I look back now, ten years later, and I go, "Do you think it's too late to like to run that hot scoop?" <laughs> I also think that in the past 10 years, the fire service has changed. They've mm. got, I mean, when I was in the top seven ranks of officer, so the chief, assistant chiefs, deputy chiefs, senior divisional officers, they were all men. Mm. And um, I'm not sure if that's still true in Essex, but I know that there are a lot more women in um, management roles in the fire service now. And I think that what happened to me a decade ago would probably not happen or I'd hope it wouldn't happen to women today. Mm. But it is such a male-oriented environment. Yeah. The women who have babies are usually the firefighters' wives. You don't really hear about them, do you? you don't yeah, really, that's true. They don't, I mean, it was at the point, it was 2010 when I had my son. They didn't even have a maternity uniform. I was just given bigger uniform. I was like, mm, this is a bit rubbish, isn't it? So every couple of weeks as I got like... Fatter. I get sent down to like stores workshop, which is like a warehouse at the end of the, in the middle of nowhere, like toddle down to be measured for like bigger trousers. And you'd end up like, because obviously bigger trousers aren't a great solution for maternity wear. <laughs> you just end up with these little like stick legs in these like massive thighed trousers being like, I look preposterous. This is not like in keeping with like keeping a smart and starched uniform. <laughs> it looked, literally looked like sort of like a big clown yeah and to be honest uh, you feel kind of like well I don't ludicrous. know about you but I felt, felt like I feel kind of quite absurd in the shape of me when I'm heavily pregnant anyway so let alone having to wear such just really large like baggy trousers yeah, it was, it's literally like the shoulders of my shirts were like halfway down my elbows and because it's back when we had um, epaulets on our shoulders and so then your epaulets would be in the wrong place and you'd just be like yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, small beer in the whole sort of first world problems thing, but also it is a uniformed organisation and they, and they do pride themselves on like a smart appearance yeah. and looking presentable. And when you literally just look like you're playing dress up in your dad's uniform, it's just like, I feel a bit silly. Yeah, and also with all these things, it, of course, yeah, that's, as you say, it's not like it is a first world problem, but at the same time, the subtext of that is, oh, well, we weren't really expecting to see anyone wearing our clothes when you're when pregnant. pregnant. Yeah. So that's kind of what makes you makes you feel like, you know, and then something as, yeah, as sort of fundamental as 
fire department, you'd think that that would be something they'd be like used to dealing with all the time. Yeah. Um, do you, did it make you feel, I mean, how did you feel about being pregnant? Did you always think you were going to have a baby? Do you always want to be a oh, mum? No. <laughs> no, no, my parents were foster carers. So my um, childhood, like from the age of four, um, was like a revolving door of children in various degrees of trauma that I would befriend and then they'd disappear. <laughs> or some of them came for a week, some of them came for 13 years. And um, so I was very wary of the idea of having kids because I was genuinely terrified because mm. really the only children I'd ever come across had been children who were quite distressed, children who'd have very difficult lives, children who'd like varying degrees of difficulty. And um, so I always thought it wasn't for me because I also, um, my mum's very unwell um, and she's been severely disabled for as long as I can remember. Um, but she did the majority of the care work for the children from home. She's an absolute hero. But I would also help with that quite a lot. And I thought, kind of thought I'd raised enough kids. <laughs> By the time I sort of left home, I was like, I have, I have parented, like co-parented a hundred children. I'm... I'm I'm good for this, and um and then I got pregnant, um bit of an accident, um but a very happy one. I knew for instantly upon finding out that I was pregnant that I wanted to keep my baby. Mm. I was quite surprised by it, but I knew. And um, luckily, my son's father and I we were we're very good friends. We've always been very good friends, and he was supportive from the off. He was like, look, whatever you want to do, I'll, I'll support you. So we've always had a nice co-parenting relationship. There was no question of us getting together. I'd just come out as a lesbian quite uh, funnily about two weeks before I then came out as a pregnant lesbian um, <laughs> <laughs> and not in a relationship with my son's father. Um, and we've just sort of mucked in and got on with it. Yeah. And I've, it's been quite... I was originally, I was initially terrified. I was like, I'm going to be terrible at this. I don't, I don't, I don't have a clue, but it's been fine. It's all been pretty fine. Yeah. No, I, I did actually read a really lovely article where you were speaking about your, your son's dad and it sounded really lovely. I mean, I was just thinking it's, I think, do you think the fact that you had the stability of that, you know, knowing how that dynamic was going to work between the two of you as parents and knowing that you always, you know, you wanted to be, that baby's mum, whoever was coming on, mm. on their way, did that help um, keep the, a sort of sense of grounded when everything else was shifting and turning in terms of your work and options? And Yeah, definitely. Um, I read an article in The Guardian yesterday, actually, that was about sort of the rise of... They didn't call it sharenting, they called it something else. But about that people term, sharenting who, before. About people who are deciding to have babies with a friend mm -hmm. instead of yeah. like waiting for a romantic partner. And I showed it to my son's father and I was like, we were 10 years like early with this. And then we both had a good old laugh about it. But I think that because we have always maintained an honest and brutally honest friendship with mm. one another and because there's never been any jealousy of sort yeah. of new partners or anything like that but we've just we're just very good friends who are raising a child together in the best way that we yeah. know how and it's worked really well for us and we're kind of when um johnny got to nine we were like we're halfway there <laughs> we're halfway there we've not we've not had any major rows or any rows that i can think of we 
do the old go into each other's houses and have a coffee at handover and a catch up and he works in a bakery so this is great he always brings like yum yums and donuts and stuff so, sounds and, like um, you've done it pretty, pretty done, well you know with all this we're doing all right <laughs> it's like, oh, who'd have thought that like we we were just we we were just kids yeah yeah having a kid yeah and, He's really well adjusted and happy, and and we both get on all right, and that's nice. He must really, <laughs> you must really see the results now in in Johnny. Now that he's hit double figures of all that love and stability that's been poured in along yeah. the way. It, I do think kids that have got that. I mean, I suppose you know you said about the the foster kids that that would have given you such a stark reminder over and over of how fundamental, no matter what is going on in the world. If your home life has got that stability of the people in it feeling, you know, loved, safe, happy, those those sort of linchpins of like childhood, they can cope with so so much. Mm. If you just they just feel safe at night and that they're loved. Yeah, and that's something that I really learned from my parents growing up, and it took me having my own child for it to really sink in. Is that one thing? Well, my parents are good at many things, but one thing that they are fundamentally brilliant at is providing a completely welcoming environment. Mm. So kids would turn up at our front door in the middle of the night with like a carrier bag with a couple of like items in and my parents would pop a Z bed up or like clear a bedroom for them and be like, this is your space. We'll go and we'll get you like some new clothes in the morning. We'll take shopping. There's always space at the dining table for one more. And even now... As an adult, I go around my parents' house and I just feel cocooned in yeah. like love and like comfort and warmth and stability. And you would see the difference in children who would come to us sort of frightened and wary and sometimes feral mm. through no fault of their own and with investment and love and stability and security and a quiet and nurturing environment you would literally watch kids blossom yeah. and sometimes they returned to their um to their parents because they would just have like a temporary situation that needed sorting out mm. or needed a little bit of help or assistance or support with sometimes they wouldn't but the the turnaround rate of just investment and nurture is something that has always stayed with me mm. that there's nothing I don't think that there's very much that you can't sort of get through with without like love and compassion and and kindness and security. Mm. And that makes for a slight wrinkle in my own um story because when I found myself dirt poor and hungry and cold, I couldn't and didn't go to my parents because I knew that they would drop everything to help me out. And I knew that my sort of, they, they're they not well off, despite what people on the internet might say. Um, they're just ordinary people. My mum was a nurse before she was medically retired. My dad was a fireman. And they would have bent over backwards to have helped me out. And I didn't want to put that on them. And I was ashamed as well that I'd been, I'd been brought up in such a, a wonderful environment with two absolutely brilliant parents and that I'd still managed to fuck it all up and for a very long time I just kind of kept up appearances put my best coat on kept my house as flat as clean as I could and just kind of got on with it and 
it was when I went to the food bank for the first time, one of the volunteers there was a woman who went to church with my mum and she recognised me and I recognised her and we didn't say anything to each other. But I went home and I was like, I've got to tell my parents before she does Um, because I didn't want them judging my mum and my dad and being like, how has their daughter ended up in this position? So I went home and I told them. I was like, well, I'm in a bit of a bad way. I'm falling on some temporary hard times. Um, that have, And they turned up with, like, carrier bags full of food. And, and they were like, why didn't you say anything? They were furious with me for not saying anything. And I was just, I was just a bit embarrassed. I was just a bit, just thought if I kept quiet, it would go away. So how long had that been the situation by the time your parents found out? About a year. That's a long time to... To just, that to just keep your head down and be like, maybe if I just keep applying for jobs, maybe this week it'll be different. Maybe this week my luck will change. Mm. That must have been so lonely for you. Yeah, it was. It's very isolating because you. I was quite involved in local politics um, at the time because I had nothing else to do. <laughs> so I would go to council meetings, I'd write about them. But And I had some good friends from those times who wouldn't, really mind coming around and sitting with their coats on in a freezing cold flat not even getting offered a cup of tea but Mm. even even that sort of dwindles because you know after a while it's it it becomes difficult for it became difficult for me to ask people to come around because I had the polar opposite of what my parents had I had a sort of a cold and unwelcoming sterile and generally untidy environment and But I'm still friends with some of the people who really cared back then and and still continue to. But you isolate yourself because you become embarrassed about your situation and and ashamed. And when you can't go to the pub with your friends anymore because you can't buy a pint and you're always the one in the corner that everyone else is buying drinks for, after a while it just... It just weighs on you. You just think, God, I'm just a burden to everyone. I'm just going to tuck myself away. So and is it quite easy to do that? Is it really? Do you think it is quite easy to sort of fall off the radar a little yeah, bit? Yeah, very easy to fall off the radar. Um, and a lot of people do. And especially I've seen a, a lot of people in lockdown have just, you know, they've just disappeared. They just go under the radar. We, we, we all just tuck ourselves away. And I think it's endemic of the society that we live in now yeah um is that we you know how many of us know the names of our neighbors or would know if they were in trouble or needed yeah. help or and we, we almost rely on people to come out and come forward and ask yeah rather than notice and nudge and offer. yeah yeah well i suppose also there's almost uh i don't think it's taboo exactly but i think you know if you've got a hunch or an instinct you don't want to embarrass someone. You don't want to cross the line. You know, there's most people can probably only count on two hands of people whose lives you know really, really well. Yeah. You know, you actually kind of can envisage what they're going home to, what's what their life is like behind closed doors. A lot of other people, you fill in fill in the gaps. Yeah. Um, and if you're thinking someone's struggling, you might not think you're the welcome a welcome person. No, and it's very difficult to offer as well because mm. when I went to a like a short start children's centre on a Wednesday. It was a group called Moto Mothers on Their Own, um, and we would get lunch. So you'd have to go and enforced socialisation for an hour, and we'd all be there 
basically making small talk, waiting for the lunch. And, <laughs> and um, it, it was like simple, like a pasta bake or baked potatoes or tuna or whatever. And one of the volunteers there or work paid staff, I never thought to inquire which, um, had noticed that I would help wash up and be like scooping leftovers into like Tupperwares and bags and stuff to take home. And she offered me a food bank referral form. Mm. And I was like, no, no, I don't need that. I just can't bear waste. Um, and this went on for a couple of weeks. And she was like, honestly, if you need the help, it's there. And I was like, no, no, I've, um, my parents were foster carers. I've seen what happens to children of parents who say they're not coping. I'm, I'm fine, thank you. And it took about six attempts for her to... And she, I mean... God bless her, she continued to ask because a lot of people would just give up and be like, okay, so I'll do then. (laughs) Um, But she was adamant. She was like, you've been coming to this group for months. Um, You've very rapidly lost a lot of weight. You don't look very well. You're exhausted. You're taking food home. Um, Just take this form. Yeah. And I was like, okay. Yeah. In the end, I was finally like, okay, do you know what? Yes, actually, I'm, I'm in a really crappy way yeah thanks for noticing yeah but a lot of people don't have that intervention or don't have that person who notices or sees them regularly because there's the regular contact as well isn't it because people do just tuck themselves away and part of that is fear of oh if i admit that i'm not coping will they take my children away yeah no i didn't i didn't Um, even think of that correlation until you said it of course you've also seen children who've had to temporarily leave their homes and then and and also the home that they get taken to is a home that you can see provides a lot of the things you weren't able to provide yeah so so maybe as well that might have been part of the reason you didn't want to contact your parents as well because it's it felt like they were the solution to the problem you were having in a way which you don't necessarily want to confront if you're not able to do it for yourself yeah i just kept hoping that every day my luck would change that something would happen that something new would like and new jobs would come up on the job center website or i'd get accepted for an interview or I'd, you know, yeah and every day it was that maybe today will be the day and you just think i've just got to get through another day i've just got to get through another day like this just one more day yeah and and that's it it was the it's the it was the one day at a time ethos before I ever knew that was a thing. It's just uh, it's just just for today. Yeah. Um, but there were a lot of those days. There were, yeah. The impact of them on your physical, mental well-being is enormous. And how old was Johnny at this time then? So he was 20 months when I left the fire service. And when I re-entered full-time employment, he was... It's 2000 and late 2013 three and a half yeah it's a really little boy as well yeah luckily he doesn't really remember anything because he was he was too young to remember which um leads to some funny conversations in our (laughs) house sometimes um but he knows because he's read my books so he's read the excerpts of like i mean they're just recipe books but they contain like extracts from my life at the time yeah um, so he's aware, of, yeah. but he doesn't He doesn't seem to have any actual memories of it, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah, well, I suppose you get kind of mixed bag with that sometimes when he probably has an, uh, no understanding of the things that you've had to think so hard about. Oh, know? yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, we've had those conversations. I bet you have. The amount of times I've had to bite back that we used to live on £10 a week. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but 
but yeah, it's fine. He's just a kid being a kid, isn't he? Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> and actually, conversely, you know, when they are that little um, and things are going on that are heavy and adult and not very nice. The fact that they're completely oblivious is also a really good tonic, isn't yeah, it, to what's going it's on? it's lovely. Yeah. And so when, when did you start writing your blog then, when he was... Started time? writing in 2012. Okay, um, so he's about two. And it was a local councillor had been on the front page of the paper saying that druggies, drunks and single mums are ruining the town. And I remember, I remember this really clearly, my dad was giving me a lift somewhere and we drove past a petrol station and I saw it on the billboard outside the petrol station. And I was like, Dad, stop the car. And he was like, okay. I was like, have you got like 50p? He was like, yeah. I was like, need to go and get a paper. He's like, okay. So I toddled into the petrol station, got a paper, and sat there absolutely fuming, like reading it in my dad's car, like absolutely raging. And I wasn't, I wasn't that into local politics at the time. I'd, I'd done some... It's um, a local market had closed down, a York Road market, and the traders had been given a few days to get out. They'd been trading for decades, and people had lost their jobs overnight. And I got a bit involved with that and did some like photographs of the traders in the market when it had shut down. But that moment with that councillor on the front page of the paper, I just sat there and I burned with absolute rage because I was like, and I started to write a letter to the paper. <laughs> it was an absolutely furious letter um, about how, you know, single mothers were actually putting our pittances back into the local economy because we couldn't go anywhere. So, yes, we congregate in the high street with our buggies, but we're spending our money in local coffee shops and in the charity shops on the high street and in the children's yeah. wear shops. Like, we are a circular economy we're putting we're putting what little we have back into the high street not going off to the big like stores and spending it online we're literally keeping it going yeah like how how dare they and um the letter was so long and so furious that the um the echo printed it over three days they basically serialized it they did though they did print yeah they printed it and um that one of my friends got in touch with me and said oh have you thought about writing a blog and I was like, what? <laughs> so I'm a very late adopter of all tech. And I was like, oh, what? It was like, it's like a little online diary. And, and I thought, oh, do you know what? I will, actually. Mm. I, I will do yeah, this because I'm, 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 I was just, there was nobody who looked like me, sounded like me, had a life like mine that sat on that council, that understood yeah, those issues. Exactly. And I was like, I want to go and look at these people who are shutting the children's centres, shutting the libraries, denigrating yeah. our high streets, pushing up the parking charges, slagging us off, and see who they are, what they look like, yes. what kind of lives they've led, like how dare they. Yeah. So I would. I would go along to every council meeting. It's just me and a local reporter sitting in the gallery most days, sitting, like looking at them all. It took me ages to work out like, who was who and that lot were the Tories and that lot was the Labour Party and this disparate band of Lib Dems and independents over here. And Okay, so these... They were baddies and they were the goodies and they were well-meaning, but you know, <laughs> you just, and you'd work it all out and then you'd learn who was in charge of children and learning and who was in charge of various portfolios. And, and I would write about it. And I look back now, I've still got those first essays and they're so like bloody and tribal and like colours to the mast, absolutely raging. But that was... That was me at the time. I had a lot of a lot of stake. I had dogs in that race. I was yeah. 
I was absolutely furious. Well, and also, sometimes anger is really good thing. I think we sometimes... Cathartic. Yeah. But also staying angry about the things that matter yeah. is important, actually. And I think sometimes we can be quite quick to demonise that emotion of anger. We can think it's not helpful or um, something we've kind of sort of got to learn how to keep tidy. But actually, I think anger is a really important emotion when it comes to fighting for the, when you see something's not just not fair mm. not right when you feel marginalized or silenced anger's really important yeah keep that, and if you don't stoke like keep that fire where you can see it it tends to come out somewhere else anyway yeah so i think you know un- seeing it acknowledging it and sometimes putting another log on it's quite quite good yeah. actually <laughs> yeah i think um some of the most popular things that i've written on my site I actually had a bit of a reckoning about this a few weeks ago because I um, was going through my blog posts, which are 95% recipes, and I put them in order of most viewed and shared to mm. give to my admin assistant for ones to like put into the like into social media and things like that. And I was like, oh, focus on these, but also some of these down here that didn't really get the love that they deserved. And of the top 20... 17 of them were political essays. Really? And of those, probably 15 of them were written in an absolute rage. <laughs> and I think that when I'm... When I... I struggle to write sometimes unless I am viscerally fired up about something. And sometimes I will read something or come across something or something will happen and I'll just know that's my whole day gone because I'm going to go to my computer and I'm going to write about it. And I just go, no, I won't be able to do anything until I have purged this from inside me. And, um, yeah, I find it quite cathartic. But I think other people find it quite cathartic to read as well and to have put into words a lot of the maelstrom of crap that we're all processing and just to be able to identify with someone's absolute fury and go yeah that's how i feel about that and 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 you validated that and made it okay to be that angry i try yeah. to direct the anger into okay now you're really mad about this here are some things you can sign here are some things you can donate here are some things you can do rather than just leave people fired up and then put them back out into the world as little like spinning tops of like fury well yeah um, but i don't always manage to do that sometimes it's quite um do you just light the rockets and let them go? Yeah, but look at what you're talking about with all that went on when someone rings up and says there's a fire. I think you're quite good at directing what needs to happen for, yeah. to, to yeah. extinguish or So now ignite. I'm going around lighting them. <laughs> exactly. Lighting the fire and then sending the resources. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, but there's lots of things that are on the table at the moment. I mean, that's you know why I was excited to speak to you because I think I think it's really important to... To stay so plugged in and I think, you know, as a country there's so much that needs to be addressed in terms of how how everything's apportioned and who's visible and it must be really exciting for you to think that that counsellor that said that ridiculous, offensive thing about single mothers, at that time they were the one with the platform and you were just someone who just saw it. But now your platform has superseded that. Mm. And that's that's all achieved by you articulating what you felt. And that's the power of that. That is a powerful tool. And, you know, I, I think your writing is brilliant. And I Thank love you. I love reading it. But actually, I also think there's... An, it's funny because I know that with... Um, 
your Twitter and with, you know, you're saying the top 17 articles being these fiery ones. But there's also this other flip in your writing, which is when you write your recipes, they're so warm and affectionate. I Honestly, I can read them like, like bedtime stories. <laughs> Thank you. It reminds you. me a bit of Nigel Slater. I used <laughs> to have that by my bed as well. Like, um, earlier I was reading one about... Um, deviled eggs oh um, yes those <laughs> yeah but how lovely I mean your writing's really gorgeous it's not just the recipe it's the environment and how you're going to eat it and all the things that it conjured up and associated within that recipe that's my favorite kind of cookery writing thank you <laughs> we um food writers we get a lot of stick for all the rambling intros that we do but there is actually a genuine reason behind it and it's mm. coming quite handy um you can't copyright a recipe because recipe, well, for various reasons, but but a, a list of ingredients is almost impossible to copyright. That's it. I didn't actually know that. So I deliberately use very, um, well, not deliberately, it's just the way that I write, but I've kept it in my very, like, florid and, like, storytelling language because if somebody does copy my work, it's immediately extremely obvious. Yeah. And I've had a couple of incidents over the years where quite high-profile um, people and organisations have just lifted and dropped my text into something oh. of theirs. And um, and my readers will send it to me in droves. They're like, that's yours. And I'm like, it is. Because, I'm, because the way that I write is very specific. So now I don't hold back. Before I used to be like, oh, this is a bit long, this intro's a bit long, God, the intro for those anchovy deviled eggs. Or actually, <laughs> it was actually an entire story and stuff. You know, it's around to 1,500 words for that whole recipe. It's like I write articles half that length. Um, but... If you if you don't want to read the big intro about the you know about the Jilly Cooper books and the and the yeah, Kissing yeah. Hills and the and all and all yeah. of those things, then you can just skip to the recipe. It's not, but that that big wall of text is a copyright um, is a is a way of protecting your creative content and your identity. No, that's I didn't know the, that. That's why my um, recipe instructions are always the way that they are, partly because I want to be a friend in the kitchen standing over your shoulder, giving you the little yeah. signs, reminding you when to get your knives out and, you know, that it's okay to leave the dishes, but also because um, because it makes it harder for people to nick your work but you've always written like that haven't you yeah I've always I've got no filter whatsoever (laughs) I always ramble and sometimes you can tell the recipes that um were in my early books that suddenly I had a panic towards the end of my deadline and was like oh god I've got to fill some spaces because they're really like perfunctory like chop this do this do that do this because I was literally sitting there like banging them out going oh god I need to fit another one in the pasta chapter (laughs) and it was like there's it's still a really great recipe but I didn't have time to sit and engage with the storytelling (laughs) element of it I was suddenly like chop onion put in pan (laughs) but um they have their uses as well (laughs) and for you and your little boy has has food always been a source of because I feel like there's a lot of love in all that I feel like it's affection and and warmth I mean, did you grow up in a house where there was cooking and was it like that? And you said about your parents saying there's always room at the table for an extra person. Yeah, my mum was from Northern Ireland and she was one of nine children. And um, from what I can gather, she did um, a lot of the cooking in the household. And my dad was Greek Cypriot and his dad, um, my granddad, was um, an immigrant from Cyprus and he came over and through various other ventures ended up running a small restaurant in the town centre and um, my dad sort of 
grew up hanging around the kitchens in there or going after school and like hanging around. So my childhood food was always a fusion of like mashed boiled potatoes with like coal cannon and stuff mm-hmm. like that or and bacon and liver and onions or like moussaka and stuffed <laughs> vineleys and capepia and you know chef dailies and so it was a, a sort of always always comforting always big always a lot yeah. of it uh, always quite simple as well mm. um, so both of my parents can cook um they have a roast dinner every sunday religiously like i think the only time as a child I didn't have a roast on a Sunday, my mum was seriously ill in hospital. And after that, whenever she was in hospital, we had a roast. But I remember it being, as kids, we were all like, there's no roast. Like, yeah, something is seriously wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't remember what we did have, but it definitely wasn't a roast dinner. But it was the house was basically like this hushed kind of, there's no roast dinner, where's the roast dinner? <laughs> um so yeah, I grew up with um, good, simple comfort food mm. like, through my childhood, and, um, and whenever I go back to my parents now, sort of for lunch or for dinner, I I'll always make sure I deliberately time it around a meal time. Cause yeah, sounds what, smart. But now they come to me, which is kind of like, no, you're you're still supposed to feed me. I'm still your <laughs> I'm still your offspring. Um, so yeah, I grew up with parents who could cook, and they they did a good job of it. Yeah, and you're. you're did your son and you like were a lot of the recipes are they sort of infused with things that he likes and things that he'd want to try again and yeah stuff he'd um, get involved with? He went through he he was a really good eater and then he went through that phase about eight where suddenly everything was beige. Everything wanted to be beige. He would mm. pick green things out of his food, he would push vegetables to the side of his plate. And I was absolutely despairing. I was like, You've eaten curry since you were eighteen months old. You have you well, you can identify every kind of bean pulse and legume. Mm. What is what is going on? And I thought, I can't fight it. I've just got to it's obviously not about food because I know that you like all those things. It's some kind of assertiveness, creating your own identity thing. So I just leaned into it. I was like, fine, you want nuggets and peas at every meal? You know, nuggets and peas at every meal. You want mac and cheese with sausages on top? Okay, but have some mixed frozen veg in it too. And I just relaxed and rode it out. And I was like, fine. Well, just and it went on for about a year. Oh, that's a long time. That is a long time. <laughs> um, nuggets. But yeah, nuggets, and the only greens he would have would be like broccoli or peas mm. and carrots and cucumber. And I was like, okay, well, we can still get you five a day, and even if it's the same five every day, fine. And I started to gradually reintroduce things after, well, after, it was probably about a year. And I would make like lasagna, but sneak mushrooms and things in there and then make them bigger and bigger until he was like, oh, wait this is a mushroom and I'm like yeah you've been eating it for the last three months so this <laughs> you can't tell me you don't like it and now he's he's great again he's back to being great still got a couple of things he won't touch with a barge pole but we're through the other side of that and yeah. I think that a lot of kids go through that I get a lot of messages from parents who are like oh my son suddenly won't eat any vegetables I'm like relax mine did exactly the same just just go with it because yeah. once you stop turning it into a battle then eventually they get bored yeah. But if it's a battle of wills and assertion, it's not one you're going to win. Yeah. It's just, you, you do not so underestimate true. the stubbornness of children. It's I like... know. But also what I didn't under, understand until I became a parent is how fundamentally emotionally satisfying is seeing your small person eat well. It like it's almost like it releases a hormone or yeah. something. When I watch, like, even the, like, the little one, if he eats well, you're just like, 
it's yeah. a good day. And if they don't eat, it just sort of puts you on edge if they haven't eaten properly. I, it's like, I, I mean, it it's must just power. be the Greek-Irish hybrid of feeder in me. <laughs> but I'm constantly like, have you eaten enough? Have you had enough? Have you have you had enough? Was your dinner big enough? Do you want some dessert? Have you? And I'm just like, just chill out. Like, when he's <laughs> hungry, he asks you for a snack. He's a fully functioning, yeah, perfectly assertive human being. He's yeah. not, you don't need to be flapping over him going, do you want some bread and butter with your dinner? Like, it's it's fine. If he's still hungry, he will say something. Does he make himself anything yet? Yeah, he loves making toasties in the uh, oh, toasty cool. maker. Um, he tried to make me pancakes for my birthday and um, I pretended they were delicious um, <laughs> but I think we I think we both knew um, that they were like slightly um, I, I'm, he didn't follow my recipe that's all I'm going to say um, but the thought was there and drowned in enough syrup they softened up so fine it was cool um, and yeah, so he does toasties. Um, we've had a pancake attempt. He helps me in the kitchen. We've got a vegetable dicer that sounds very fancy, but um, I've got arthritis in my hands. So in the winter, uh, they're not as dexterous as they normally are. So it's like a tenner and it's you just put a veg in and you slam the lid down and it cubes it to perfect cubes. Fancy sounds brilliant. brilliant. It's I like a, a gadget. Oh, fantastic. And... Um, he loves it. Mm. He's obsessed with it because he's just, it's so like, it's so put that on the desk and hit it as hard as you can. Yeah. And he loves watching the veg fall through and it all be like perfectly diced up. So he did like a whole bag of onions for me the other day. <laughs> I was standing there with these big Dame Edna onion glasses on that one of my friends gave me as a joke present on Christmas. So these big yellow, like crystallized glasses and um, just smashing onions up in it. And I was like, this is very useful. This is a useful enthusiasm for you to have. So it's going getting all the veg out of the fridge, going do the carrots, do this, do the cucumber, do that. And I've got a fridge for like nicely diced vegetables That's ready brilliant. to use. I'm going to yeah. get invest in a dicer. I bet oh, I'll send you one. I've it. got loads of them because I road tested them to find the best one for arthritic hands. So oh, um, cool. you can have the second best one if you like. <laughs> I'll gladly accept. Only because the, the, be, the best, best one um, has been very enthusiastically used and has got like a chip out of the locking mechanism. Otherwise, oh, I'd send you that. <laughs> but it requires some careful handling these days. So when your little boy was growing up, was, he's he's actually, I mean, unwittingly, he's actually led quite an unusual childhood. But is he very aware of that, the sort of differences? Because, I mean, you know, he'd be a single mum, all the experience you've had with poverty... You know, coming out as a lesbian not that long before you actually announced you're having <laughs> yes. a baby. Um, you know, it's it's not um, it's not what's perceived as like the traditional upbringing. No, and it's um, it's it has its moments. Um, so I've had to explain to him sometimes that you know that it's you don't do things like shout out in school that your mum's famous because then people ask questions that we don't particularly want to answer and mm. and um and also it looks a bit braggy and and also i wouldn't describe myself as famous i just write some stuff for some newspapers sometimes and pop up on telly messing up recipes it's, it's <laughs> you know it's not not exactly a like a a big deal um but he had he, he's just very excitable and he loves sort of the little nuggets of my life that he gets to like being on the periphery of when he was younger, I think it was half term, I ended up having to take him to ITV because I was cooking on this morning, a good few years ago. And I went back into the green room 
and um, he was like riding around on Mo Farah's shoulders. And I was like, <laughs> I want to ride around on Mo Farah's shoulders. <laughs> it's literally like Mo Farah like horsing him around the dressing he room. He picked good shoulders. And I was like, faster Mo. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I was too shy to ask for a photo, but a few weeks later, we were watching the like, you know, the running thing on the telly, and um, Johnny just had like a moment of recognition, and I was like, yes, yeah, that, yeah, that, <laughs> that man, is that guy, <laughs> that man, that guy, and sometimes he'll sit there and he'll treat me like a journalist. Sometimes, like, who's the most famous person you've ever met? And I'm like. Uh quite a difficult one to answer mm. I'd be like Brian May and then he'll go away and he'll look up Brian May and he'll be like oh he was in Queen Nanny Joy really loves him you've met him and then it's <laughs> and I'd be like yeah and then and then sometimes he'll come out with like various other questions like that and you know it's quite nice because I'm not a like name dropper my friends are all fairly like ordinary people with mm. all, like you know refreshingly like wonderful lives yeah. and um and i don't sit there sort of talking about those things around the dinner table or, because it's it's just a bit gauche so it's yeah. quite nice to have a little 10 year old that i can secretly brag to sometimes and be like oh yeah so guess what i'm doing today oh i think it's nice he's interested yeah I mean, my kids don't really seem that they don't really ask me any questions about what i do <laughs> um but not that long ago i did a program that i was it wasn't something I could go into many details about while I was filming it. And the kids didn't ask me a single thing. And I was like, God, this just shows you how no one ever really asks me anything. It turns yeah. out, it turns out it's like really uh, very easy to be private. Um, but I think it's sweet. But I, th- I guess the two of you are kind of, you know, there's so much about, um, you know, how he was, the, what he was born into, all the things you experienced. They, they actually become like the bedrock of your relationship. And I bet you've had to have, Lots of conversations about lots of things, obviously in a way that's appropriate to him, but about things that aren't necessarily the same conversations that are going on in every house. But I think it's so healthy and brilliant to keep those all that dialogue open. And now you kind of can have that. I mean, you're always going to be yeah. his mum, but you yeah. can have that openness. Yeah, it's great when they get to the age where they're like little people you can have chats with. Mm. Uh, there was quite a long period where he, he would repeatedly ask me why daddy couldn't live with us and initially i was like well we don't have the room like daddy's got two other children daddy's got a wife um we were like you know um you know it's not it wouldn't and then it's like that way that my mind works i was like maybe it would work maybe we could just all amalgamate into this like Mm. commune and like you know co-parent each other and it would all be really great and then um and then his relationship didn't work out and it's all got a bit more complicated and then johnny really ramped it up he was like so can daddy come and live with us now i was like all right we need to have a chat <laughs> mummy and daddy are very good friends and we've done a very good job bringing you up but mummy loves girls and so you might have noticed that mummy's partners have all been women that's because mummy dates women so mm. like so mummy and daddy aren't going to get married because um that would be dishonest and probably not work out so well for either of us um but you know we're always going to be very good friends and he's always welcome around for a cup of tea and comes to sports day and stuff and that's great stop asking now <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. Then, yeah once we'd had that chat it was fine and then he tried to set me up with some mums from school for a while and then i was like 
they probably don't go out with women. That's so sweet. <laughs> and he also, tried to set um, you up with some mums yeah, from school. Yeah, he I would come that. home telling me enthusiastically about his friends whose mums were really nice. <laughs> I'm actually really cool with it being just us, you know. I'm totally, totally fine with it. I know it's a bit boring for you when I have to take Zoom calls in my office on my own with the door shut for 20 minutes here and there. But, you know, you can you can totally live without having another adult kicking around to entertain you 24-7. But I bet you that... Do you have a lot of your, like, lesbian friends that think the way that it's worked out for you with your son is pretty amazing and they'd like to have had something similar? Yeah, I've got friends like who, were, who have been... who were initially um sort of skeptical um possibly of my child rearing abilities but now that i've sort of managed to get through an entire decade without any <laughs> serious harm um they 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 really admire and like appreciate sort of how it's turned out and it was i mean it's i look at i see some of my friends who've and the the convoluted routes they've had to take in order to have their own children mm. and i'm like pretty lucky actually just sort of you know just not nothing about my life in the last 10 years has been conventional but a lot of it's been a lot of fun and it all seems to have sort of all the dust has settled and it's all quite nice yeah no I know it does sound really lovely well it's just lovely to hear a story that does have a single two single parents but no massive drama actually I think that's probably the bit that's unusual with that most unusual thing because normally it involves a big drama or heartbreak no there's been no no big hoo-ha and mm. um i i i got on really well with his dad his dad um passed away a couple of years ago um but we used to work together um he used to work in um, a coffee shop and gave me one of my first ever jobs yeah. and when i was struggling and it finally all came out that I'd been struggling. He absolutely bollocked me. He was like, and why didn't you come to me asking me for a job? But I was like, I couldn't, I just couldn't. Um, but I still get on really well with his mum and he gets on really well with my parents and we're just, you know, we're just, it's nice. Yeah, that is really nice. I think that's lovely. And I think kids are really, I say this a lot to my friends if they're ever going through anything, I don't know, where their situations change or something that's upsetting. I say kids are actually... They can they can obviously feel the sadness of things, but they don't are not sentimental. I don't think kids ever reflect on a life they thought they'd be living or a sort of parallel life that should have been going on. It, it, that's not really where they're at. They do kind of react to the here and now, yeah, which is I find really reassuring. So you know you haven't got to worry too much about that. They're quite sort of pragmatic yeah. generally about that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely, and very resilient and adaptable as mm. well. They're very sort of chilled. Generally, yeah, quite chilled. Does it kind of surprise you sometimes that you've kind of become something of a spokesperson for all these things that used to be so private to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had to learn, really. I mean, I've I have ADHD, which means that I um, quite frequently have no filter and can go at things with alarming enthusiasm only to then find they don't work out for me, which means that um, over the years I've thrown my hat into some rings and been like, oh, yes, I'm going to be vegan now, was what is one of a, is quite a um, good example. And um, actually because of the arthritis, that didn't work out so well for me. I need fish and like omega-3s and stuff Mm. for my joints. And um, I've stuck at it for two, two solid years, but I'm was deteriorating so it's not for everyone and I had to do this like 
slight climb down and be like, oh, I'm eating sardines again. And um, people were really disappointed in me because I'd gone at it with such gusto and such like public enthusiasm. But I think that I, I never asked for my life to be lived in public and everything that I do, I do with like puppyish good intentions yeah. I'm just like oh I'm really excited about this I want to share it and um, and then when it goes wrong I'm like I fluffed that up but I'll share it um, <laughs> and I've had to learn to kind of keep things in a bit now not not because I don't want to share them because I always want to share things but because of the way that people can weaponize mistakes or yeah or cock-ups or kind of the culture we live in a little and it's, bit and it's made sometimes. me quite fearful of being so open but at the same time, I've had um, a good friend of mine is um, a lot more well-known than I am. And I said to him, well, how do you manage to keep so much of yourself out of the public eye? And he was like, I don't put my every waking thought on Twitter, Jack. So, hmm. well, yeah, well, that's not really an option for me. It just comes out of my fingers. Sometimes I don't even know what I'm thinking until I'm looking at it back on my own screen. <laughs> like, it's a way of, for, for me to process thoughts and information yeah. and reach out and communicate with people and and especially in periods when you're a single parent you're on your own and in the evening it's dark and you're lonely and it's a nice way to be like hey people send me some pictures of your dog that's um longhand for i'm sad make me happy again um and it's quite hard when i've spent the last 10 years basically spilling my guts all over the internet for connection and communication commiseration support to go around and try to sweep them all back up again and stuff them back inside myself there's too there's too many they stretch too far there's too much of me out there now for me to suddenly decide to lock it all away yeah but you don't need to because actually it clearly makes you feel better and the communication and that community is actually also really a really good thing and actually i think i think most people are not the comment section on the Daily Mail. I no. think most people don't think in those terms and are a lot a lot better at dealing with a, a 360 of someone than, than, than we give most people credit for, if that makes sense. I think because of the fact that we can access those very, you know, black and white opinions, we sort of... We can, those are the voices that have our ear for a second. But actually, yeah. I, I don't really know people that think like that in real life. No. Most conversations I have with my friends or even people who think differently to me, we're, it's a lot broader and there's a lot less heat in those, yeah. even when we have debates about things. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's I think it's a lot healthier. I used to read everything because I'd be like, I'm keeping myself grounded. I'm keeping an ear to the ground. I'm, I'm seeing what people are saying about me. I'm looking mm. for like perceptions. I'm seeing if there's anything I need to change about myself, anything I need to explain. It. I got so caught up in it. And eventually I was like, people who like me, are going to view the things that I do and the things that I say as confirmation bias as to reasons why they like me. Yeah, that's People who really dislike wise. me are going to view the things that I say and the things that I view as confirmation bias to reinforce the reasons why they dislike me. Do either of these... Should either of these influence or change the way that I live my life? No. No. So we just carry on, bumbling along like a little puppy, getting excited, shouting about things that excite me, like anchovy deviled eggs or irk mm. me like child poverty and um just bumbling along on it i'm a lot i'm a lot happier now that i don't go looking for the terrible things that people say about me to reinforce my own negative self-esteem 
and I just get on with it. Occasionally something will flash up that's libelous or just generally outrageous and I'll have a pause and I'll be like, can I be bothered? <laughs> and usually it's, no, 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 I'm just going to get on with my day. Slightly but, irked. But. but one time you were bothered and I won't mention the person's name because I would not dare give space to someone who I can't stand. But there was a comment that was put on Twitter that ended up in a court case. Yes. Which you won. And how was it to go through that? 18 months of hell. Oh, 18 18 months months of lawyers' meetings, 18 months of having to... In fact, I threw those trial folders away last week, finally, having moved them, moved house with them several times. Yeah, it's just toxic, isn't it? thick, thick lever arch files of death threats, rape threats, hateful (gasps) things that I had to, um, like colour code with post-it notes um, so it was like pink for rape threats purple for death threats orange for something else um, and I moved those with me and everywhere I went they would come and they would take up an entire like bottom bookcase and I decided to finally let them go about a week ago at the same time as I went through my phone and deleted the entire folder of screenshots because generally the only thing I would screenshot would be abuse. Mm. And I would do that as a hangover from the libel trial because it would be it, it might come in handy because so much of the evidence for that trial was deleted, some of it by me because I didn't want to look at it anymore, so mm. I deleted bits because I didn't want to continually be tagged in conversations about it. But it was emphasised to me the importance of keeping all the evidence. So I would automatically, if I read something hateful about myself, I'd screenshot it just in case I'd ever need it. Mm. And I realised that I was carrying around, literally in my hand, 13,000 examples of extreme abuse and lies about me that were taking up space that could be taken up with happy pictures of my son or goofy pictures of my cat or pictures of my recipes or nice things people say. And I deleted that. It crashed my phone trying to delete the entire folder at one po- in one go. So I had to then do them like a few hundred at a time. And I threw away the trial folder. And I panicked afterwards. I was like, oh, God, I've got rid of all that evidence. And I was like, no, I feel lighter and I feel better and I'm just going to sit with this for a moment and I'm not going to do it again because what other people... I use that trial as a benchmark for when somebody really does overstep the mark and I go, "Mm, still got um, Mark, the lawyer, on that trial's number on speed dial on my phone and every now and then I'll text him something and be like, is this worth it? He'll be like another 18 months of mm. like mental breakdown losing work blah, blah, blah. he's like I would represent you in a heartbeat he was like but ask yourself if it's worth it like sit with it for 24 hours and I've never I've never done it because I just think I've got back into a place now where I'm in my groove I'm doing the thing that I love I'm doing like low cost recipes I'm, I've found my little storytelling arc again doing the occasional commercial partnership with people mm. who's like like values align with my own and I go do I want to put myself through that again do I want to really be the person that sues people at the drop of a hat on Twitter um not at the moment no just want to 
carry on in my like puppyish, jolly little groove. I don't think anyone's nice going to take time. you on again, though, are they? Come <laughs> well, on, don't it's, be that it's, stupid. It's, it's, it's a double-edged sword because I get a lot less nonsense written about me in papers now, mm. um, mainly because once you've had a successful like litigation, um, people mm. are quite cautious about writing things that may or may not be true or could be contentious or that you could even just kick off about. But it also means that I slightly struggle to get um, like PR stuff for my books because the British media tends to basically only take the rough with the smooth. They'll write nice things about you if they can follow it up with a slight bit of scandal or if they can keep yeah. their readers interested in you by going, saint, sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Yeah. And, um, and it's really obvious, um, like, bait and switch. But because they now can't do the sinner bits, they, they generally are a bit like, oh, no, we don't only really want to write puff pieces, actually do your own marketing. But it hasn't harmed, mm. hasn't harmed me in any way. I still get, like, interviews and stuff like that. But it does um, mean that... Every odd little Twitter spat I have, I now don't have to worry about it being written up in like yeah. some piece of gutter press, being like, oh, sweary rant. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. Have we met? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, I've got no idea what that must have felt like to go through that lengthy process. But from the outside looking in, I definitely was cheering at the end of it. Thank you. Uh, I mean, that, that, that took a lot of guts, I think, actually. And, and also, it was completely right. That individual was told that's not okay. Yeah. It's not something to pay fast and loose with. And I think way too much gets... No. I mean, you've, you've, you've fought your battle now, but there'll be other people that need to take on similar things, I think, just to I kind of... I hear from them every week. I bet you do, yeah. <laughs> I've yeah. become something of a, like, quiet go-to for people who are like, I've had this run-in, mm. and I'm like, oh, I can put you in touch mm. with people, or I can have just glance Mark? over it. And <laughs> Yeah, I, I have to say that Mark gets sent a lot of work. <laughs> from my Twitter inbox and um, and I just quietly match people up with or I'll say or and I always say you have to be prepared that once you take it on you can't back out because if you back out of a pro bono um, legal case you are then fully liable for all the fees accrued so far yes. so people say oh it's so brave of you to pursue it to the end I was, I was like, like no no it wasn't I tried to get out and then I was told that I'd be liable for about 300 grand and I had about 40 quid in my bank account at the time so I went well we're seeing this through to the bloody <laughs> end aren't we um, <laughs> yeah and, you have to keep a sense of humour yeah, about it as well I'm sure definitely like, and, um, and it's a good sign that if you and your legal representative are still on very good terms you yeah, know you obviously, a, you obviously a, kept on the right side of things yeah he's a great he's a great man he's a good laugh oh, and he's good. an excellent cook as well he's always ah. sending me he's jewish so he's always sending me recipes for like lacquers and like various you know, there's a bit of a running theme and, here with the people in your life being good cooks so yeah you're, you're i try to collect dad them. And like, <laughs> dad's like, yeah it's very smart keep the priorities in the right place um Something else that I noticed you've become a bit of a spokesperson for is um, being transgender. Mm-hmm. And I am, this is a call, I have, this is something I get really, um, that's really close to my heart actually, um, because I, I've, from the moment I had my first baby, uh, a boy, and then continued to give birth to boys, I've been fascinated by the expectations that are placed on gender. And it's made me think about, what's happened in my own life that I might have unwittingly as well sometimes conformed to without really realising. And I think it's such a a brilliant time for 
I've read a really great quote about it actually saying that this is a good opportunity to be emancipated from the sort of binary way that we see gender. I mean, did you notice when you had your baby that it was something you thought about when you had him or was it not really something you thought about? Pregnancy was really confusing for me because I'd, um, I didn't know the term non-binary, but I knew from sort of my late teens that I didn't quite fit into a box of... The, the the neat little female box and i know a lot of a lot of women feel that they don't and it's quite difficult to pin down what that neat little box even is without reinforcing gender stereotypes Definitely, but yeah. i i didn't want to be i was very clear that i didn't want to be a boy but i was i i veered towards androgynous um in my dress and in my mannerisms i changed my name from a very like fluffy feminine um name to jack because i wanted something that was um sort of not gender specific although people argue with me that jack is a boy's name i'm like well it's clearly not cuz it's my name and i'm not a boy um <laughs> and um and then i fell pregnant with my son and pregnancy brought with it a lot of changes to my body and I was a bit I I loved being pregnant I really enjoyed it sort of from a from a fascinated point of view that Mm. I was growing a life inside me that was like and but my body changed and became a lot more feminine and I couldn't I couldn't sort of escape into the sort of androgynous places that I'd previously been because I was very clearly a heavily pregnant woman and it took a while for me to sort of come back out of that and remember who I am mm. because I just immersed myself in in parenthood instead and just was like this 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 body it's gave me this life like how dare I sort of despise it or not be grateful for it and um I did, and um, I start. You get to a point with your with raising children, who where you kind of start to piece back who you are outside of being a mother, mm. and um, and I do identify as non-binary, and I've got um, good friends in the transgender community who've been really supportive with that, and who've been really helpful in helping me navigate that. Mm. Um, but it comes under a lot of criticism. Um, people say, oh, it's not a real thing, or by insisting on being non-binary, you're reinforcing gender stereotypes, and et cetera, et cetera. And I just kind of think it's just it's just not really anyone else's business. And yeah. I think that when I came out, I don't think there were any other um, UK public figures who were non-binary I yeah. know that there was Ruby Rose in the States and Miley Cyrus um, so it was treated as a huge deal by the press and I only came out because um, a former friend had threatened to out me um, and was like oh I've got these photos of you like all dragged up dressed as a man it's like Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I wish I'd had the sort of courage at the time to have been like do you worse um, yeah, but, but maybe I, you wanted to own it actually. Yeah, I want. I want. To, I've always been quite clear that whenever somebody's tried to scoop me on my own life, I get in first and mm. sort of own the narrative, so that yeah. I, it's not reaction. It's not reactionary. It's always sort of no. But also, in. it's a good conversation to have because it is. It is a pretty vital thing, I think, mm. to get get these conversations. I mean, 
of course, you might not decide you wanted to be the, the person to front that, but actually, no, I, I really wasn't because I was also I was also quite um, I was still working it out, yeah. and it's quite hard to like be the public face of something yeah. when it's such a diverse umbrella that you can't possibly speak for, represent, or even understand everybody else's experiences under that umbrella. Yeah. Uh, um, Do you think that's almost part of the? the thing that people get squeamish about when they're having the chats is that they're wary of well firstly terminology the language is highly sensitive Mm -hmm. but also to a lot of people very new words to be speaking but also the idea of trying to speak generally about something that's as you say so bespoke and personal is really hard to navigate as well yeah and I also think that because of the the hostility that the trans community have been under from the mainstream press for the last few years. Yeah. And they really, really have. It's absolutely shocking. Um, it makes people less, less, um, amenable to coming forward and telling their stories. Because yeah. why would you yeah. open yourself up to yeah, particularly- all of those accusations and criticism, especially trans women? I mean, the, the, the hate and vitriol and bigotry that trans women get from certain areas of our press is atrocious. And I don't even know why I'm being coy about it. It's the Times and the Sunday Times and and certain columnists there. And their rhetoric about trans women is horrendous. Yeah, I know. I I try to break it down sometimes. I don't really understand the emotion of it. I just... I just... It's a lot of it has been um, traced back to like far right fundamental US like supposedly Christian groups mm. um, are pouring loads of money into these like UK anti trans women campaigns and you're like do you really think they're going to stop at trans people once mm. once these groups of basically religious fundamentalists have got their claws into trans women's rights do you think they're not going to yeah. stop at gay people's rights or abortion rights or yeah. anything else they're not yeah they they they're using the bogeyman to get in and, and then they're gonna well i suppose also if we're taking it away from those very very far right extremist groups if it's more just the conversations that that are being had and i've had this chat with like really close friends of mine where we think the same about so many things but on this just aren't quite lining up it's been quite surprising to me also something where I'm like okay well let I don't again I feel like I have to be careful because I don't want to offend anybody that this is so sensitive and what causes you to feel the way you feel can be born out of all manner of things and all manner of experiences and for a lot of uh women that have spoken feeling uncomfortable about trans women's rights it's often something they trace back to something very traumatic in their own lives um, Usually so, not something perpetrated by a trans woman, though. I have never heard an example of <laughs> yeah. it being perpetrated by a trans woman. However, that doesn't take away from the fact that it's like something that's, you know, yeah. emotional for them. So I just, I cannot understand where where the threat of the trans women is. For me, I only see vulnerability in a group that needs to be supported, yeah. not threat. I, and I can't get beyond that to kind of, when we're having the chats... Um, and you can intellectualize these things, but somewhere out there is, you know, maybe a young trans teenager who's feeling really frightened. Yeah. And that's the person we've got to think about. Yeah. It's, um, 
it's it's a conversation that has just become increasingly hostile and and incendiary and what people forget is that this isn't a this isn't a sort of a an argument to be played out in columnist broadsheet newspapers this is vulnerable groups of people who simply want to live their lives in ways that aren't harming anyone yeah exactly i don't actually think twitter's the right form for it either i i definitely don't and i think that i think the best thing that we can do is really is to just not give those groups airtime and just sort of take the oxygen off the fire and just support trans women yeah and and it's not it doesn't need to be a binary thing you don't need to be say you either support trans women or um women who are survivors of violence who may have um reasons their own reasons for um, being wary about you know about allowing people sort of into their spaces who they may perceive as a threat completely unreasonably it's not an either or you don't have to it doesn't everything just feels so polarized nowadays and there's nothing to be gained from throwing those walls up and folding your arms and going oh i don't agree with you so i'm not going to talk to you or i'm just going to call your names on the internet or i just think that there's there are real human people in in the being caught in the firing lines of all these words that are being thrown around and yeah and they're people who just want to get on with their lives. Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I totally agree as well about the, the whole thing of... The thing, I mean, I saw it so clearly with what happened with Brexit. Whether you would leave or remain, everybody thought they were right and everybody thought the other people were wrong. And that, yeah. that can only lead to trouble, can't it? You've yeah. got to look for, um, you know, the common ground. I, I spoke um, not long ago to Gina Miller, who um, took the government to caught over leaving, um, initiating Brexit unconstitutionally. And she said she now goes around talking to people that voted leave areas. She, she, she'll sit into, you know, local town hall and have a talk there. And she said she gets a lot of abuse, but she always tries to say to people, look, if we said all the things that are the same about us, we'd fill several sides of A4. And yeah. there's probably half a side of A4 about things we don't agree on. And I think it just takes being calm. What's done is done. We've got to move forward with things. Look for a a better life for everybody. Everybody's got mm-hmm. to feel they've got their their area, the place they can go to for support, for help, for communication, for community, and build build the bridges. It's so yeah. dangerous not to. I think ostracizing and isolating people, especially based on what you think they are or who you think they are, mm. is a really dangerous precedent mm. to set, and it's something that is just exacerbated by social media. And I can't see a way for it getting better unless we all make a conscious effort to be better in yeah. all of our communications and all of the things that we do. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you've got the perspective is as well. You know, you've got to sort of see see the social media for what it is, really, and keep it in its, in that place. Because yeah. there's lots about all that stuff that's really great as well. Oh, actually. yeah, the connection, the yeah. dog pictures, the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. the communication, the community, <laughs> yeah, the being like able to that. reach out. And information, when... you know, I like the fact that news travels fast and yeah. you can get access to all of it and it feels a lot more democratic in that way and also finding people that you know if you do feel like you're 
alone and someone else is in a very similar situation, but miles away, you can actually make that connection. That's that's yeah. really positive. I mean, I suppose with if I suppose the only question I want to ask about the non-binary, just for my own understanding, really, is if is it does it feel like it is a, a, comes out of a response to how society and things are structured about the perception of a gender, or is it a, is it nothing really? Is it much more personal than that? It's just something that I've always felt. I've always been, I'd always been tomboyish, but it was it was more than the tomboyish element. Mm. It was a real deep and private desire to be more male. So I would sneak out of the house wearing my brother's clothes under my own clothes and then I'd take my clothes off and then I'd feel ashamed and embarrassed and then I'd hide his clothes that I'd borrowed and like stuff them in the bathroom cupboard or whatever. Mm. Um, it's For me, it's just been a... I don't... I I have had some very traumatic experiences in my life that are that may not have happened, would not have happened if I had been born a boy. And I understand the academia behind the whole, maybe I'm rejecting my agenda because of the the life experiences I've had that have been an indirect result of being born female. But also just, it's just who I am. It's just how I am. I just... I just feel it's 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 less a sense of dysphoria about my body and my appearance and more the sense of euphoria when what I see in the mirror aligns with the penny drop moment of mm. this is what I'm supposed to look like, this is who I am. Mm. And for me that is being largely androgynous and... Um, you know, I quite like it when sort of short-sighted old dears say, oh, you're a nice young man in the supermarket. <laughs> I'm like, thanks. Yeah, but also, um, you, know, you don't necessarily have to... Everybody is shaped to a certain extent by the life events that happen. But also, I'm sure you've seen it with your little boy, and I see it with my kids. The kernel of who you are and how you feel about things and where you place the importance, significance, how you respond... It's sort of there from the get-go, I think. So, yes, there can be key life events and milestones that kind of push you in one direction or another or highlight or, you know, um, moderate. Mm -hmm. But by and large, I kind of feel like the person you are is there from when you're you're born, in a way. It's a nature-nurture balance. I feel like a lot of it is just who you are and you probably see that with Johnny yeah definitely um Johnny is a boy boy he's a (laughs) prophet and I've and you know it's funny when people um accuse parents of parents of trans trans children of like pushing an agenda on their kids and I'm like it's impossible to push an agenda on. Yeah, you can't kids. get them to like, eat vegetables. Yeah, exactly. Want to. <laughs> you can't even get them to eat peas, let alone stick a dress on if they don't want to. I mean, it's it's the people who say that generally don't have children because yeah. they are the most willful and self-actualizing and self-assured little human beings that they could like ever hope to be. Absolutely. And all you can do as a parent is give them space to grow into who they are, encourage them to be themselves. And love them and support them. And Aww. as long as you're doing all those things, it's 
you're going to do okay. I totally agree with you. Lots of furious nodding going on my side of the table. Um, or just a, a last question for you. You said, you know, beginning of this, that if if you could, you would, you know, the, the job you had at the fire station, manning the phones, is something you still go back to. But with all the stuff that's going on and your writing and all the things you care about and the the place you found yourself in with the place that you can put your wisdom out there for the world, is that really something you would do or is it actually kind of where you're supposed to be a bit more now i kind of feel like i could do both in the way that i often feel <laughs> you like you get four days I off could, a week with your yeah, I mean, yeah four days that my watch officer used to because i when i was in the fire service i also did other things like worked in a bar and worked in a nightclub and she would always be like you're supposed to spend two of those four days off sleeping i'd be like yes 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 i know i know um so i do slightly fantasize that i could do both um but in the same way that i quite frequently take on more than i can chew and then end up working till 2 a.m being like why am i like this um i quite like where I am at the moment I no one is more surprised than I am that I'm still going I thought my first book would be a one-hit wonder and then I'd be back on a supermarket checkout or something you know doing and I'd have been I'd have been very happy with that um I'm also realistic enough to know that the gig, gig economy and being a freelancer and being a writer is um increasingly precarious and I may have to go back and get a real job at some point but for as long as this like mad little roller coaster will support me. I think it kind of helps that I still live fairly frugally and mm-hmm. you know, and that I can eke out a one commercial contract to like pay my salary for a period of months and be like, right, okay, this is this is good. Um that I'll just, you know, I'll keep going for as long as there's a there's a need, there's a vacancy for what I do. And mm. as much as over the last couple of weeks, Twitter has been filled up with people going, oh, well, it's really easy to cook a meal for 20p. It's really easy to boil an egg for 12p or whatever. Um, nobody seems to be chomping at the bit to step into my shoes. Um, no, I think you've carved so. out a place that's all your own. I think your roller coaster's going to keep going. <laughs> if somebody could just, you know, cover my holiday, that would be nice because <laughs> I haven't had any of that for quite some time and... I've just learned to take Sundays off and I love them. It's great. Um, <laughs> the first time in years, I'm like, this is so good. Like, my house is reasonably tidy. My washing is done. This is fantastic. Um, but yeah, yeah holidays Sunday. are yet, yet, yet to happen. But if I could just find someone who could ape my rambly writing style and <laughs> get a bit angry on Twitter in my absence for a few weeks a year, I'd, um, I'd quite like the time off. <laughs> Well, good luck with that. You have to put it back into that spreadsheet that you started back in March. <laughs> so, how brilliant was that? So that's me and Jack. And we recorded that. Oh, golly, when was it? It must have been back in sort of October, November time. Whenever you were allowed to have people around if you were doing work things. And then happily Jack stayed for lunch and I have to say it's the first time I've ever had to cook for someone who's also had a cookbook out and uh, it went well, thank goodness. Uh, it's a little bit intimidating, that isn't it, if you know someone's really good at cooking. But I went for it anyway and actually it was really nice. You probably didn't really need to know that. Um, so, who am I going to have next week? I think next week I'm going to put out the one, the chat I had with Jess Phillips. Jess Phillips is the... Labour MP for Birmingham and uh, yeah 
she's completely brilliant as well. I've, I've always really found her such a... Um, I suppose exactly who, how I was hoping politicians would be when I was growing up. You know, passionate, uh, really... Um, what's the word? Sorry, I'm so cold, my brain is seizing up. Uh, really connected with the constituency, um, really switched on with what's needed in that area. And uh, sort of a bit fierce and fun and smart. Anyway, that's next week. But this week, thank you to you all for your ears. Um, I'm going to go inside now and uh, try to stave off the frostbite, which is attempting to get a hold of my right hand as I record this. Um, but thank you so much. It's good to see you again. Uh, thanks for lending me your ears. And uh, look after yourselves. It's supposed to be a bit warmer this week. So uh, hopefully if I have to <laughs> lock myself out of the house, in order to talk to you, I will not be so cold. All right, lots of love speech, you say bye. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.